Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. For years, the world has been talking about Britney Spears and conservatorship. The story has attracted so much attention that it has its own New York Times documentary and its own hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Free Britney. Here's what people are talking about. At age 26, pop star Britney Spears, who has long been in the spotlight, was put under a court-sanctioned conservatorship. That meant that other people, including her father, who had been named as a conservator, were allowed to make decisions about her career and her money. Recently, after 13 years of acting as a conservator, Britney Spears' father finally agreed to step down from the position in his daughter's estate. The singer had previously petitioned the court to have her father be removed from the position altogether. The story probably attracted so much attention because the details around it feel so fantastical and out of the ordinary. But the reality is that conservatorship and its companion guardianship aren't so extraordinary. To talk about these issues and what they mean for folks like you and me, I've invited Alexandra Sasha Golden to the show. Sasha has her undergraduate and law degrees from Boston College and has been practicing law in Massachusetts since 1994. She is a longstanding member of the Massachusetts chapter of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys and of the probate and Sullivan small firm sections of the Massachusetts Bar Association. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Sasha. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks. So let's just dive right in in terms of what is guardianship and conservatorship, because I think that what it is is part of the problem when it comes to people understanding what's happening with Britney Spears. Because it feels very, as I mentioned, extraordinary, but it actually is a pretty ordinary, and I'm using air quotes because it's not completely ordinary, but it's, it's a pretty, uh, it's something that you and I in our practice are familiar with. So can you kind of walk us through what is a guardianship or a conservatorship? Let me start by saying that I'm talking about Massachusetts law, and I cannot exactly represent what the law in the other jurisdictions are. In Massachusetts, we divide control of the person and control of the estate into two fiduciary functions. Guardians control the person, conservators control the estate. I think that gets a little confusing because California, and I believe only California, lumps everything together and calls it a conservatorship. So I'll just stick with my Massachusetts language. Yeah. And it is worth worth noting that since you pointed out that Britney Spears, this has been going on in California courts. And um, those of us who practice, especially on the East Coast, know that there's a wide divide sometimes between states generally in terms of the way that the state law works. And this is a state law issue. But yeah, so today when we talk about it, I know you're going to be talking about it from Massachusetts perspective, but generally for the audience, we're just talking about it in broad terms. Absolutely. So I just want to share with you a couple of definitions in Massachusetts law. The critical thing is, as I said, a guardian manages the medical and personal affairs of what we call an incapacitated person. And our statute says that an incapacitated person is an individual who, for reasons other than advanced age or minority, has a clinically diagnosed condition 
that results in an inability to receive and evaluate information or communicate decisions to such an extent that the individual lacks the ability to meet essential requirements for physical health, safety, or self-care, even with appropriate technological assistance. Appointment of a conservator or of may be made in relationship to the estate and affairs of a person who is disabled for reasons other than minority if the court determines, one, the person is unable to manage property and business affairs effectively because of a clinically diagnosed impairment in the ability to receive and evaluate information or make or communicate decisions, even with the use of appropriate technological assistance, and the person has property that will be wasted or dissipated unless management is provided or money is needed for the support, care, and welfare of the person or those entitled to the person's support, and that protection is necessary or desirable to obtain or provide money. So you're going to see a definitions bearing at least some similarity to what we use under our version of the Uniform Probate Code in pretty much every state. Mm -hmm. So how do we get there? The first issue is you need clinical proof. Right. And depending on, for example, the most common clinical proof I would look for if I'm deal if I have a case involving an elder with dementia is likely to be either a geriatrician mm -hmm. or a geriatric psychiatrist because they're going to be the most familiar with the types of medications and treatments that are used for a person who is that who is demented versus if I'm dealing with somebody on the autism spectrum who's because of developmental disability has significant problems making decisions that involve planning and organizing and so forth. I'm going to look for, at least to start with, it's going to be a neuropsychologist who can assess the person and see what his function is. Right. Well, I think this is a point that a lot of folks don't understand about what's happening with Brittany, but also with conservators and guardians generally, is this idea that I think that some of the press that's been out there has suggested that it's just something that you can say. Like, I think Sasha can't take care of herself anymore. So I want to be her guardian or her conservator. And that's not the way it works. When you're talking about clinical proof, you're talking about, as you just mentioned, getting a doctor's statement, a psychologist's statement, like something from someone who has examined the person and knows that there may be issues either, you know, with respect to taking care of themselves or their property. That's absolutely right. And certainly I looked, I took a very brief look at the California law. California requires it. Massachusetts definitely requires it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the statement that has to go into the court from the clinician is pretty detailed. And they want, the court wants people to actually, the doctors to actually fill it out. Mm -hmm. That can be a challenge. You know, for whatever reason, most, a lot of doctors are very busy. Or maybe for some, it might be perhaps yada, yada. I don't know about that. But I've certainly had to, had to go back to physicians and say, I need more data here. Right. I think some of them don't want to be involved too. I mean, I've had right. this happen in, in Pennsylvania where we've had elderly patients where maybe a child is trying to get guardianship 
over their parent. And it's an awkward family situation for sure, right? To start. And sometimes, especially if it's a family physician who has maybe seen the person for quite some time, sometimes they don't want to be involved. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also, is the family physician sufficiently familiar, not just with the patient, but with the medical condition and his treatment to be the proper person to fill it out? Uh, Let me just get back to my autism example. Again, in Massachusetts, we have to have what's called a clinical team report filed. And this has to be done by a neuropsychologist, a social worker, and a physician. Mm -hmm. And where they are all coming together, they're all looking at the same data, and they're saying, yes, this person can do this, but can't do that. And the whole idea there really is to try to tailor the guardianship or the conservatorship to the individual's needs. Right. Just as an example, I have been working with a family, you know, parents and uh, their son who is has autism, but is in somewhat low, lowish IQ, but not intellectually disabled. Mm-hmm. He's 18. He understands exactly what the guardianship is about, which is remarkable. But we sat down, my clients, uh, the young man and his attorney, and went through and worked out you know, with general guardianship, but with certain limitations on that. And the idea, as I explained to the, the boy, was to say, look, who you are at 18 is not necessarily who you're going to be at 28. Mm-hmm. At this point in your life, you don't have certain skills. Everybody, you and everyone else is going to work towards getting you those skills so that in a few years, perhaps the guardianship won't be necessary at all. Right. And you actually, when you were talking or telling that story, two things popped out at me that I think sometimes people don't understand, especially in context of how the reporting has come out about Brittany. One is that oftentimes guardianship can be consensual. Like when you were talking about like sitting down and saying like, this is the best outcome for everyone. And I've had that happen in elder law cases as well, where everybody sits down and they're agreeable, right? And I understand that the the Britney Spears matter is, is now very contentious, but not all of the guardianship or conservatorship cases start out that way, right? Like there are times when everybody is sitting down and they all do agree that this is what's best. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think the case that I've been dealing with is a great example of that. On the other extreme, then you have somebody with, say, an advanced dementia who can't agree or disagree to pretty much anything, period. And in which case, those decisions are going to be made for them and it'll be a general guardianship of all facets. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, if in Massachusetts, and this is now federal, this has been recognized by the Supreme Court as well. If you are going to be prescribed an antipsychotic medication, uh, such as Latuda or Risperdal and other things in that family, you have to go above and beyond that general guardianship to demonstrate that the medication is necessary, that the dosage is appropriate, and that the outcome, if the medication is not used, is not allowed by the court, the outcome for the incapacitated person would be would likely be poor. Mm-hmm. And again, we have a situation where, all right, somebody uses a drug for 
maybe an off-label use, which happens with some of the antipsychotics that they can be used for to manage agitation or anxiety, not just hearing voices. Right. Again, but it's in that class of drugs and it has notoriously bad side effects if you develop them called uh, tardive dyskinesia. So again, I have to have a psychiatrist writing up a separate report explaining what the medical, what the psychiatric history is here. What information did they take in in making the decision about the drug? How's the history of side effects for this particular person? And so forth. It's really, if done properly, it's a very detailed report. And it should give the judge a lot of information. Then what happens is the guardian is then appointed what we call a Rogers monitor. It is not the guardian who is deciding what medications to take. It's actually the judge has ordered a medication and some alternatives. And it's the, it's the guardian's job then as monitor to report, back, to observe how the drugs have, are working and to report back to the court on an at least annual basis. And when you mention the annual basis, I think that's something that's also important is that this is not something that happens once and then is never revisited. And I know that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about your 18-year-old that you're working with, that the idea is that there may be some opportunities for change, either because of life skills, different opportunities, group homes. There's lots of different alternatives for then you know, having a, a lifelong guardianship. In fact, guardianships in most states, I'm guessing, since you mentioned Massachusetts is this way, Pennsylvania also requires a regular or periodic checkup with the courts to say, this is how things are going. And these are our recommendations for moving forward. It's not something that happens one day and then you never talk about it again. That's right. And in this state, what happens is the guardians or the conservator both are required to file annual reports with the court documenting what's gone on over the last year. Has there been a change in condition for better or for worse? What the needs of the person may be? Then the court, at least in theory, reviews all of these reports. Mm -hmm. And the court has always has the option of bringing somebody into the courtroom and asking them to explain themselves. Right. You know, similarly, we have for conservators, we have an account requirement. Mm -hmm. You have to file your accounts on an annual basis. Somebody called in Massachusetts, we call them a guardian ad litem, is a court investigator who who will be appointed specifically to review those accounts and to tell the judge whether it appears that all is in order. And the guardian ad litem has a great deal of weight in these matters because the guardian ad litem is a neutral. And there's a lot of money sometimes at stake in these, right? Oh God, absolutely. I've been a conservator at one point, which involved on a matter which involved some very dilapidated real estate. and. There is a protective services matter going on. The property had to be sold and we had a bidding war and ended up for half an acre, got 3.15 million. Oh, nice. Yeah. Because it's a desirable area. So we had, so yeah, that was, that was a large amount of money. In the Spears case, the articles I've, I've read indicate that her personal estate is something worth in the neighborhood of 60 million, mm-hmm. uh, which is 
certainly unusually large, but again, the same considerations apply whether it was 60,000 or 60 million of managing it appropriately in the best interest of the protected person. Right. And what really astonished me about what I read was where the father was taking 16,000 a month salary. Ms. Spears only got 2,000 bucks a month. Right. And I, and I think that was one of her complaints, which is, yes. it, and it is interesting because obviously, you know, we don't know what's going on inside the court, right? And there's a lot of this information that is necessarily uh, remains private. So, you know, it's, it's not for public consumption, no matter who you are, you know, whether it's Britney Spears or whether it's your 18 year old client. But it is, it is interesting because one of the things that I think is at issue are, you know, what is best for the person, the protected person, as you mentioned, and then what kind of compensation is appropriate for someone managing that sum of money. And this is, I think, something that we see even in smaller estates, because I've had issues where there was an incapacitated person who eventually passes away. And what happened to mom's money becomes a big issue, right? Like, and and we've mentioned these court accountings, but folks who are managing this money, in some cases, it depends on, you know, what it is. Like you mentioned real estate, real estate's a, a whole other uh, animal, right? Because that's not just putting money in a, in a Vanguard account. That's actually usually actively managing something. It sometimes can be a full-time job. And I'm assuming that uh, based on the statements that Brittany Fa- uh, Spears' father has made, um, he has said that he's managed her career and her money. So I believe that he is treating himself as he believes an appropriate manager in that situation, you know, the the kind of compensation that a, a manager might get. I think that's what's really interesting to me about this case is that it's high dollars. An independent person might also be compensated quite well if they were acting, but it's her dad. And I think that's what is really hard for folks to wrap their, their head around, right? Like that this is her father that's in this position. But the reality is a lot of these cases, it is a relative who becomes the conservator or the guardian, at least in Pennsylvania. I assume it's similar in in Massachusetts. I mean, certainly, yes, there's a priority in the state statutes as to who gets uh, to be guardian or conservator. The first line is always family, Mm -hmm. be it a spouse, a child, sibling. But the court is going to usually assume that the family knows what's in the person's best interest. Right. And that everything will be fine if that family member is appointed. The problem that I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen, is sometimes we get well-meaning family members who see a lot, who suddenly are in charge of somebody else's money and that somebody else, that money, there's more money there than that person might have for themselves. At that point, it becomes a protective services question of getting the, that person's hands out of those pockets and then getting the money back. And that, at least in Massachusetts, is neither quick nor easy. You know, I, I've been involved in a couple of cases uh, involving contested accounts mm-hmm. where funds were mismanaged badly by a non professional conservator. And the case took really 
18 plus months to get work all the way through the system before we had a decision. So it's a very difficult thing. And, you know, you can bet, and I've seen it when I've been in a GAL on conservator accounts, people have no idea how to invest. Right. That's what I was going to say. Sometimes it's not even malicious. Sometimes it's just that they don't know what they're doing. Right. They want to take care of mom's money, but they genuinely have no idea how to do that. And they don't seek out help. Correct. And even and sometimes in one case I had where, you know, somebody did hire an investment advisor, but a close look at the at the investment accounts and the related uh, contract real said this investment advisor was basically skimming. Oh wow. I mean the amount of profit that was hidden inside the account uh, that was presented every month. You have to, you know, you have to know what you're looking for, you know, to dig in and, and find where is the, uh, where's the commission and the fee hiding. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, what percentage might somebody be taking for active management? Again, you know, your nice average person is not going to know that stuff. Right. We've had a similar issue. We had a, an elderly person who the person who was acting on her behalf didn't understand that the uh, financial advisor had invested the money in uh, high growth, high risk. Right. And this was an elderly person in her 80s who did not need something in high risk, high growth uh, accounts. But but this is, you know, the family had never had any money um, and they didn't know, like they were listening to yeah. what they thought was a professional's advice. Yeah. And then, of course, unfortunately, they faced the liability for listening to that professional. Mm-hmm. Which I get, they meant well, but right, right. Well, and this is some of what is going on also in the Spears case. Um, you know, uh, Jamie Spears has alleged that's Brittany's father has alleged that some of the decisions that Brittany has been critical of in her filings were not his fault, but were the attorney that he was working with. So it it does get really tricky because you know, as you mentioned, it it's going to fall on the person who is acting as the fiduciary. But, you know, how do you get to that point? And, and sometimes, and I think that's what I, I, I find really tricky and interesting about this, the Britney Spears case in particular, somebody had posted on Twitter, like, where do you stand? Do you think, you know, are you hashtag free Britney or do you believe the, you know, what, what her dad is saying? And I think what gets complicated is sometimes the truth can be, and I don't know, because again, I haven't read the, all of the papers in Britney Spears because they're not made public. But the truth can be somewhere in between. Like sometimes we see what we want to see. And I think that's where it gets especially tricky because there's a lot of things at work in all of these cases. You have really, it's, you know, it's hard to get to the point sometimes where you say mom can't take care of herself or dad can't take care of himself or, you know, your child cannot take care of themselves because of drug use or because of some kind of mental issue. So you have these family dynamics and then you have money and then you have, other people getting involved, whether right. it's a financial advisor or an attorney. So from a practical standpoint, if you had, if someone's listening and they're in a position where they're like, you know what, I think I need some help with mom. Like what are good steps to take initially so that you don't end up in a situation where there's a lot of agitation and, and unhappiness with, with the understanding that none of the, you know, these cases, they're not necessarily going to go make everybody happy, right? Because of what's involved. But what are some practical tips for how do you get started? How do you know what to look for? Should you look for a certain kind of attorney? Like, 
what would a normal person sitting, listening, thinking, I think I need some help. What would you suggest that they do? If there are funds available beyond paying a lawyer, I always encourage people to hire a geriatric care manager. And that these are social workers and nurses who are specialists in, geria- in geriatrics and increasingly in disabilities for all ages. Mm-hmm. Let them come in and sort it out, be an advocate. Perhaps the issue mom might be acting demented, not because she has Alzheimer's, but she's malnourished. Right. But you don't necessarily know that until you open up the cupboards and look and ask mom what she has been eating. Or reacting to medications because one doctor didn't know that another doctor was prescribing something. I see that all of the time in my practice. Yep, absolutely. So that's the first thing I would do is, you know, I want to, in an ideal universe, I don't want to go to court. Right. This can be avoided. So that's why I want to get the care manager in, let the care manager, they're very good at working with people in adversarial situations, get mom set up, make sure she's seeing the right doctors and and taking the right meds. You know, and we start from there. And if, if that calms the situation down, that's great. After that, again, assuming mom has, you know, sufficient capacity, the next step would be getting her to an elder law attorney, which is one of the things that, and what we would do then is talk about at least our language in Massachusetts is a healthcare proxy and absolute and a durable power of attorney. Right. Again, I was thinking with the Spears matter, you know, this woman has had lawyers in her life ever since she was a teenager. Right. Why didn't one of them, no one apparently suggested, gee, you want to go out and get a durable power of attorney. You want to go out and have somebody appoint somebody of your choosing to be your healthcare agent. I'm not here. And I haven't read a single word that that actually happened. Right. No, and I think that's, again, one of the tricky things about in in her situation is that her parents had always been involved in her, you know, her career and her life. I think sometimes when you don't have that separation, Mm -hmm. yeah, like you said, nobody's going to make that suggestion to you. I mean, when you're 21, you know, it's rare that somebody's sitting you down and saying, hey, let's talk powers of attorney. Yeah, they should. Um, when my daughter went off to college, we did. But but I think that, you know, not everybody has that conversation. And certainly perhaps you're right. But I was just in this case where we're talking about so much money. Oh, yeah. And she had children. You know, somebody, ideally, this should have happened. And it's very sad that it didn't. Similarly, if let's say, however, that mom's level of capacity is such that I would not do any a document for her, you know, particularly if mom comes into my office and two minutes later, she can't recall the conversation we just had about her dog or Mm -hmm. or whatever, I do not feel I can ethically do a document for her. Sure. So one of the interesting things that's coming up is what's called supported decision-making. And this is an alternative to guardianship and conservatorship where the person chooses various people who they might want to have help them make a decision. And that could be a friend, a close family member, their accountant, whoever. If they need to make a significant decision about something, they have people to turn to 
who can give them feedback about, well, here's why you might want to do this and here's why you might not want to do this. And who would be a good candidate for something like that? I think a lot of people who might have a meaningful amount of some disability who might, under certain circumstances, go under guardianship or conservatorship, but haven't. Mm-hmm. For example, there are people, you know, some meaningful intellectual disabilities, but who are generally speaking high functioning. They have they have strong opinions. They can articulate some reasons why they might want or not want something. And they're able to listen and take in the information. Right. And this is something that is being advocated very hard by the disability community as an alternative uh, to the court's involvement. And certainly that does not mean that a guardianship or conservatorship might not be appropriate at some point if they have not shown themselves to be sufficiently competent to sign estate planning documents. But I think this, in the situation I was talking about with my young uh, man with autism, you know, that was basically what we were driving at. You know, we this long conversation that we were having with the parents and with him about, well, what are his strengths and weaknesses now? Do you feel if you wanted to talk to your mom or dad about X, Y, Z, do you think you are you comfortable doing that? So they're giving that kind of support, which is what we want in any guardianship anyway. But, you know, he might be down the road, a very good candidate for supportive decision-making, depending on how he matures over time. And it's faster, obviously, than going to court as well. Like you mentioned, oh, something taking, you know, could take 18 months, especially in a not quite yet post-pandemic world. Things are still clogged up and moving really, really slowly through the courts. Something like that means that every decision doesn't have to be so delayed. Yeah, that's right. And it's also, let's face it, less expensive. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't mind making my living, but if I if I don't have to inc- see a client incur that bill because we can find something that in this situation might be better, faster, and cheaper, then great, let's go for it. So I think that's, and I don't think that's going to be necessarily the right thing for everyone. For example, again, if we're dealing with somebody with a fairly advanced dementia who no longer has cognitive ability, you know, that's not going to, that's just not going to work there. And you would need a guardianship. Yeah, but I could see where that would be really useful again for you talked about the spectrum, like folks on the spectrum, or perhaps people who are in recovery from drug and alcohol issues that maybe need somebody, a second pair of eyeballs looking at things, but maybe don't need long-term a decision maker for them. I could see where that would be really useful. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also just critical that at least in the case of family guardianships, that whoever or conservatorships, whoever is ha- acting as the fiduciary, be able mentally separate their role of fiduciary from parent. Right. You know, again, in this in the Spear situation, there seems to be so much just longstanding dysfunction in that family that that's maybe another that's another issue about the role everything getting blurred. Right. When I'm looking through her documents for the Spears case, one of the things that struck me over and over again is let's assume that the guardianship or the conservatorship was appropriate to begin with. Like if you start there, and again, I don't know whether it was or not, but let's assume that it was. 
why wasn't there an independent fiduciary earlier on? Like that is something that keeps coming up for me over and over. And and I understand that if her dad was her manager, he felt like he might be the right person. But at some point, there was clearly a lot of unhappiness. There was clearly right. a lot of discord. Why don't you, you know, as somebody who's, you know, I've I've recommended and trust more times than I can can uh, can recall being able, you know, said to someone like, you know, you don't need to be trust for this, a trustee for this trust. Like you cannot be the person making the decision for your child or whatever under these circumstances, because it's just going to make maybe a potentially unhappy situation worse. Why not use an independent fiduciary? So that was something that really keeps coming back to me is why wasn't their intervention earlier in terms of her father stepping down? I'm, I was really kind of you know, yeah. taken aback by that. Yeah. The other thing I was taken aback by in reading uh, the, the articles in New York Times and uh, Ronan Farrow's article in The New Yorker is the history of alcoholism and domestic violence. Right. And certainly in Massachusetts, anybody applying to be a guardian or conservator has to complete and submit what we call a carry form. And that allows the court to look up not just any criminal background, but also restraining orders and things of that nature, protective services involvement, that sort of thing. The problem with that, though, is it doesn't go across the border. The states are not, you know, here we have a family who has split their lives between Louisiana and California. Mm -hmm. I have no idea if this is done in California, which I hope it is, can they easily access the Louisiana information, which is where divorces were happening and other serious problems. And if that information then had been plunked up in front of the judge, and I think a reasonable judge would have looked at it and said, hey, wait a minute, this is probably not a good idea. Right. And why wasn't there someone advocating that position early on if the information wasn't available to the judge? Why wasn't there someone on Brittany's behalf saying, hey, let's think about who's being put forth and why? And and is there a better alternative or is there some better fiduciary out there? I just, again, I keep coming back to the idea that, and you you raised this earlier, that it, it does seem like no matter where you fall, was it appropriate or not? Why wasn't there somebody advocating for her earlier? Right. And I think certainly it would be terrific if attorneys are appointed for everyone involved in conservatorship and guardianship matters. In Massachusetts, the only way you have a, an attorney by right is if you're, if is a Rogers action, that is the antipsychotic medication, because that implies certain types of civil rights. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the court will, if you ask for one, the court will probably appoint one, but then how is that person being paid when you don't necessarily have access to your own funds? Right. And this is, I think, a broader problem, of course, of access to counsel generally is, it's, you know, if you're comfortably off, you can go and hire a pretty good lawyer to advocate in your behalf. But if I think of the who knows how many thousands and thousands every year of guardianships and conservatorships that are being brought by on behalf of people who may not have that kind of access to funds. How good representation would they get? Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's tragic. It is. 
there's no good way out of that one unless state legislatures see fit uh, to increase funding. Right. I do think one of the good things, you know, that's come out of this whole news cycle and, and, you know, you don't ever like to see something positive come necessarily at someone else's um, expense. But I do think that one of the good things, if you could find something good in all of this, is that it has brought a lot of attention. The, the Britney Spears matter has brought a lot of attention to guardianships and conservatorships and the needs of people who may be either incapacitated or allegedly incapacitated. I think it's been really eye-opening for a lot of folks. And I think that at least, you know, if you, if you can find some kind of silver lining, that would be it. One other piece to that silver lining is my senator, Elizabeth Warren, has introduced a bill in the Senate to improve data collection. Right now in this state, we have a number of counties in this state. Nobody has a clear idea how many guardianships are brought because of dementia or developmental disability or whatever. And having the data collected and then reported to some central agency would at least help target where things should go. Right. Especially in terms of court resources. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think this has been really, really valuable for listeners in terms of understanding, you know, what does this mean? How does it affect not just the Britney Spears of the world, but, you know, mom and dad or or kids? If people wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? For right now, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you can also email me at golden at goldenlawcenter.com. Awesome. And we'll be sure to put those links in the show notes for folks so that you can easily find it. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.